Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a guest with Simon Long, the Executive Creative Director of Intermarketing, one of the fastest growing agencies in the UK. Simon has worked with some of the top brands and agencies in the UK, including a stint as MNC Saatchi's art director, and is now helping Intermarketing develop a unique brand building strategy. What's London like at the moment? London is uh, claustrophobic. Yeah? <laughs> um, yeah, still working from home. Weather's not too bad. Um, it's all good. Just got into our groove, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I think from a creative perspective, it's worked out really well. A bit of headspace. Great. Um, what about you guys? So we were, I mean, we were working on a major national TV campaign about a week before lockdown happened. And while uh, I don't know if I'm available to like talk about the brand, the fact is it was uh, a, tra- a public transport. And so, you know, we were, we were all guns blazing, uh, yeah. you know, running as fast as we can. And then a week later, it was, they're not going to be advertising public transport for a, at least a year. So, yeah. <laughs> So that went down, but yeah. So uh, we've got we've got this office in this studio here, and it's you know the rooms are all separated by these partitions, and so uh, we finished building the studio. Did about a month working from home, and then I can walk here from from where I live. So I've just been coming in here to do work for uh, a few weeks now, and uh, okay. yeah, it's all good. So I mean, and we've been able to keep up and running. So uh, tell me how um, you, your creatives, and intermarketing generally have responded to the the crisis. I mean, it, it's like everyone; it hits pretty quickly. Um, it was, you know, it was kind of a very much think on your feet. Um, and I guess the logistically, it was okay from London uh, and Manchester and the New York offices because we're relatively small. So it was the case of literally pack up your tools, get home, set up at home. Leeds, which is our biggest office, was a bit more logistically a bit of a nightmare. But I think with everyone, we just thought on our feet, we sort of turned it around, everyone went home, everyone kind of got on board with it. And you make it happen. You know, it's um, like I said, you know, having Zooms, having Teams, it's just kind of like refocused the way we work, you know. Um, and from a creative perspective, I found it really beneficial. You know, it's... Um, the guys have got a lot more headspace, you know, they can kind of, you know, and to me, what I like about it, you know, creative isn't, isn't a nine to five job, you know, it's 24 seven. There's always something you're thinking about or mulling it over. So to have the kind of the freedom and don't get me wrong, it's a very sad situation. And, you know, from a pandemic, but from a professional perspective, I've always likened it to being on holiday, you know, don't wear a watch because there's no schedule. So if people want to get up early, crack on, you know, have a break a bit later, go for a run, play with the kids, whatever they want to do. It's kind of, you know, it's leaving creatives to their own devices and they'll find their own groove. As long as the work gets done, which it is, it gets done to the standards required, which it is, it's, it's, it's fine. You know, I think in many ways it's quite kind of, um, it's quite inspiring really. You know, I think a lot of my team have found out, found different ways to work and almost kind of opened up different creative kind of avenues to explore. Personally, you know, which they can then bring back to the team as and when we start to kind of congregate again. Yeah. Do you um, feel like you'll take something from this going forward in the way that you work with your creative team? Are you going to try and keep that kind of flexibility? It's like the jobs, as you said, to rephrase, the job's kind of 24-7 as it is. So have a, as long as the work gets done, we can have some flexibility with the schedule. 
Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I think that's it. You've got to take the positives from this. You know, from us, from uh, you know, even from logistics, we don't need to keep travelling everywhere. You know, um, it, it, what I like about it, it gives hopefully the, the creative guys have a confidence that they can actually step away and use their time productively. You know, as long as we know when the deadlines are, how they use that time is up to them. Some people get up early, some like work late, some people just might do nothing for two days and they might hit a spark of brilliance. Exactly, whatever, whatever the best way of working is for the guys and how they can start to sort of like bring that into the process, absolutely fine with, you know, and even for me, that's sort of my level. I still want to learn from the guys. What I do isn't, isn't right, it's right for me, but, you know, I'm still open to learning. So, um, yeah, I think it's been great. It's been a really enlightening process, I think. Cool. I'm interested to learn from you about uh, intermarketing as a, as a group more uh, generally, because you're the ECD, but as yep. you said, you've got offices London, Manchester and Leeds and are you supervising the creatives uh, as well as New York are you supervising the creatives across all of those teams yeah it, it, it's a strange one because um, you know historically like we're a northern company set up in Leeds about 25 30 years ago um, I came on board about five and a half years ago when uh, there was a buyout, um, sort of fresh blood, fresh thinking. Um, it was historically more a kind of design and production house. Um, and they wanted to be more kind of creative, strategically led, you know, push the creative boundaries. Um, so I came on board to set up and head up the London office uh, the same time we opened uh, the New York office and the Sydney office. And then not long after, um, we opened up the Manchester office and the Amsterdam office. So in, you know, in the space of a couple of years, it really grew. Um, so I guess, yeah, from my, my perspective, it was just sort of like come on board and kind of shake the creative up a little bit. You know, we've got, um, I've got my creative partner, a uh, fellow ECD. He's based in the Leeds office and he's more the operational side of things. So the design and production are more kind of, you know, kind of the, the, the face of it, I guess. So I guess it's kind of a twofold process of, keeping the kind of the northern roots of, you know, kind of uh, production um, and, and, our, and our personality and our kind of, you know, and our, and our process because that makes a lot of money for us and it's going really well. We start to bring in kind of a new creative think thought process, more strategic, start to look at kind of tech and innovation. Um, so that's kind of my job and I think that's where it's going. So I guess you know, looking from the industry in and how we can start to um, sell our product more uh, to the outside world. Yeah. Um, so I get the impression you just said that the growth is quite, uh, has been quite quick, cram crammed into a few years. Uh, do, can you speak at all about what the ambitions are for intermarketing, you know, where you want to be uh, placed in the industry, how you want to be seen, you know, are you looking for that sort of top 10 spot with, with the, the Ogilvy's and the Adam and Eve's of the world? Not really. I don't think, I think we want to be, our vision is to be the most connected agency in the world. Uh, and by that we mean, um, from a consumer perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a commerce perspective. And I think, you know, you look at the big agencies, like you just mentioned, the Ogilvy's, uh, you know, the BBH, you know, they're great, you know, and they're well-oiled machines. I think what we do is slightly different where we're not just kind of a creative agency. We're not just a design agency. We're not just a production agency. We don't just do retail. We kind of do the whole shebang. So we won't just come up with an idea. I think that's where we're going with being more connected. We can actually start to do the whole entire consumer journey. And, 
it's something we've just launched actually recently. We, we, we sat down last year and similar to what you said about the big agencies, all the big agencies talk about the big idea. You know, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? And to me, I think the big idea is almost becoming obsolete now in this industry. You know, big ideas, they come, they go, you know, they, 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 they kind of get lost, you know. Whereas years ago, you'd spend a lot of money on a lot of budget on a TV spot. TV spots aren't really there anymore. And we start playing around with like, it's more about the long idea, you know, thinking longer, not bigger, where it's more about the long ideas, they start earlier, they last longer. You know, they, they, they run longer across, you know, culture, commerce, consumers, channels. So that's how we're starting to work now. And that's what I mean by connected. So rather than just think of a big idea, we do a big TV spot. Let's start to understand the consumer. You know, they start online, they go in store, they go across social. How do we attract them? How do we go involve them? And I think that's where we started to go. Where maybe that's our kind of point of difference from the bigger agencies, where it's not just like here's a big, glamorous, beautifully crafted campaign. We're doing more kind of the end to end. So we don't just create a seamless kind of customer journey. We hit the relevant touch points along the way, but we make it happen as well and we can do the production. So I think that's where we're starting to find that it's really resonating with our clients, especially the lifestyle ones, where it's all about consumer first rather than just client or channel. I like this and I like the idea of the long idea. Do you think you could uh, uh, give some examples that are in culture already or like in the in the creative world of... Um, of of an idea that didn't necessarily uh, blow its uh, blow all of its budget in one go, but actually just you know had a had a much flatter curve to use a popular term right now. So I'm getting the impression from what you're saying, the big idea, a big spot, a big budget thing is like the John Lewis advert. It's on once yeah. at the end of the year, and it doesn't run for the rest of the year, and then there's a new one next year. Whereas a long idea might be. Yeah, I mean, a good example, our main client is Adidas. Uh, We do a lot of work for Adidas. And if you look historically, they've done some amazing spots, big ideas. You look at the one where they had the Beckham, the Noel Gallagher and Daft Punk, you know, big, you know, it was shareable. But again, you're talking at the consumer, you know, and in this day and age, they want to be part of it, especially with a brand of Adidas. They want to feel part of Adidas. So I think, you know, thinking longer for them is starting to involve and incorporate the consumer in their campaign, make them part of the brand. So you can see how a brand like Adidas, for example, have progressed from just kind of showing these great spots and being aspirational to being more kind of invitation led in terms of like, you can come in and be part of this brand. And we've done a lot of stuff in the flagship stores with like Superstar, where they come in and create their own kind of you know, Adidas gear. Um, they become, you know, on, on, on Regent Street, they can become part of the campaign, standing alongside, you know, Frau Williams and David Beckham. You know, we did something last year where we did Adidas Creators, where we um, did the main stores of London, New York, Paris, Milan, I believe. And we handpicked some kind of young, fresh creatives, whether they were kind of in the music industry, the ad, the ad industry, wherever it might be. And they came on board and it very much kind of a collab with the brand to see what, what, the, what the different cultures were in the different cities, but started to bring them together. So that's kind of where we're thinking where the long idea can lead to, where it's not just an ad campaign, it starts to kind of go further into kind of culture and commerce. Yeah, I also like how the long idea hooks onto a, a, con- a current concern because the big idea is not sustainable necessarily, whereas long yeah. sounds like it hooks onto sustainability and that's becoming more and more 
relevant and more and more important to people that what you're doing now, you have to be able to do tomorrow, next week, next year. And obviously the, the, the obvious example would be climate action. People saying, you know, we need things here to be sustainable for a long time. And this is bringing that idea into the creative world. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look what we do, it's sell stuff, build brands, influence change. And I think exactly to your point, it's the last point. How do you influence change? You know, and what we want to start doing with thinking longer is it almost becomes like a mindset, you know, like that kind of frontier mentality. So I want the guys to start thinking forward, you know, be almost be the forecast, not the follow up, you know, and if we're working on for like Adidas, what is the future? Thinking longer, what is retail? It is probably sustainability, like you said. It's probably innovation. If we can then start to kind of, you know, I liken it almost like a crystal ball and a compass. You know, you start to imagine the future and then you can start to plot a path to get there. And I think if we can then start to have more of these kind of like lifestyle brands and the campaigns we do are more embedded in culture and they involve the consumer. It just gives it that longevity. Like you said, rather than just have a TV spot that kind of is played, we've got some media space and it goes again. It's really kind of embedding the consumer in kind of the ethos and the ecosystem of these brands. Yeah, yeah. I like, uh, I see some some brands, obviously we're in, we're still in the COVID-19 lockdown. We're still, it's very much front of mind for this year, it's been the most important thing that's happened. That's not going away. We don't know where it's going to go, but um, the reason I'm mentioning this is because some brands, some products have done surprisingly well out of uh, COVID-19, Zoom being one of them. And so would that be, would you be, would you be thinking about approaching those kind of clients? Because obviously Zoom don't do much above the line advertising and saying, well, one good thing about Zoom is we can do this. I'm in Manchester, you're in London. I don't have to get a train to London anymore, spend a fortune, cost a load of carbon. And yet here we are meeting so you can grow your business from home without flying around and training around. Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I don't think we need to tell brands that, do we? I think it's, it's, it's so kind of obvious, but I think there is definitely that, I think sustainability. Uh, and also I think, the big thing to come out of this, to touch on what you just said, was like brands have got to feel sincere. They've got to feel real, you know, and we've had it where, you know, brands want to do this and they sort of they suggest stuff. And it's like, but if you're not already doing it or it's not, you're not voicing it, it's just going to sound false. It's just going to fall in deaf ears or it'll have a detrimental effect. You know, it's, you don't just jump on the bandwagon because, you know, for whatever reason. I think this is what we're trying to get to with thinking longer. Um, it's almost kind of, you know, right into your future self. You know, where do you want your brand to be? You know, almost, I think at the moment, we, we do live in an age of short-termism where it's kind of that immediate gratification. It's like, you know, everything's got to be done. There's, there's targets to be hit. But what we're trying to do now with our key clients is get them to almost like stop for a minute and almost go, look, where do you want to be? Where do you want your brand to be? What's your kind of, you know, and then what's beauty? I think this is a great, this is a great time. The world's almost come to a halt and it's stopped it's a good time to reflect and look back. And to your point, look what brands are doing now. Look what technology is doing now. Look, you know, we work in the communication industry. Look at communications. We're, you know, so it's almost a kind of, um, almost kind of an exercise that we're trying to, to sort of help our clients with. And then we've likened it to like, you know, the, 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 if you look at it in terms of like, you know, time horizons, it's the now, the near, the next. So if we can start to look at it that way and go, okay, what can we do now? What's the immediate impact we can do now? How can we start to plan in the near? And then how can, what can we do to be a bit more proactive? 
I mean, that's that's the key to the brand going forward. And to your point, I think, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the biggest thing to come out of me looking at kind of the brand, the best brands that are doing stuff is it's sincere and it's honest and you're not just selling a, pro, a, a product, you're selling a purpose. And they're the ones that are really going to come out of this, I think, because, you know, that's what the, that's what the consumer is going to warm to, a purpose. Yeah, and I think since potentially since the 2008 financial uh, crisis, um, there's been, for as long as I've been sort of brand conscious, because I was in school then, um, there's been a, a more, people are more suspicious of advertising and of brands in general, you know, because it's like, well, like you say, it's, you're looking for a short-term gain, you're looking to boost sales in the next quarter, but you're doing that at the expense of 10 years time, you know, you're producing lots of plastic or you're doing whatever. So I think this is a really interesting strategy. And I, I do think it's uh, going to be quite a uh, popular one going forward. So um, maybe, uh, who knows, maybe you guys are at the um, at the front of a certain kind of curve, because I get what you're saying insofar as if you're looking at the the uh, sales figures for a company like Apple in the late 80s, early 90s, it wouldn't look good. But they had a sort of long idea, you know, because it yeah. was just waiting for the marketplace to catch up for the internet to be able to facilitate the machines. So. I think you're right. And like I said, you, you, look, you look back at the crash, you know, that, you know, that happened you know, was it, you know, a few years ago. A lot of good stuff came out of that. You know, a lot of kind of like, you know, social media apps, you know, popped up. A lot of brands did well. And... It's something that I've been thinking about recently. It's almost, from a creative perspective, it's almost taken this global pandemic to like lift the curse of creativity. Because you said we live in an age of short-termism, but also I felt that creativity, creativity was getting sucked out of the industry, it was getting sucked out of the process. And we're very much focused around, we're data-driven. You know, we're driven by insights and research, which is great. But at the end of the day, what consumers buy into, and I would say this, is kind of creativity something that sparks their imagination, that involves them. And I, I do feel out of this, there does feel to be a kind of resurgence in kind of creativity and crafts. And I think even where you guys come in, I think rather than we live in this age of short-termism, like I said, and we live in this kind of skip-ad culture where my two-year-old son can skip an ad that I've done, you know, or he can like, put on silence, we can't hear the beautiful work that you guys do. I think, we, I think we're going to come out of this um, with a more of an appreciation for kind of craft and creativity. Um, which I'm all for. I hope so, because regards uh, with regards to the increased targeting of advertising, more and more specific, zooming in further and further onto your end user, um, I'm actually starting to get a little bit frustrated as a consumer with that strategy. I get frustrated every time I go on uh, YouTube and you know, I have to watch two five-second pre-rolls, but not only that, it's because they've tried to guess what I like and sometimes inaccurately. And... I think uh, I think it was um, Rory Sutherland who said uh, that you know casting a broad net might be a better uh, idea because you have to invest more in the creative because you don't know exactly who's going to see it. So it has to be more ingenious because whoever's seeing it has to respond to it. Whereas if you're going direct to your consumer, it's like, here's what we think you're going to be interested in and you're going to respond to exactly this kind of message so it becomes more prescriptive and less creative. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, this whole... This whole kind of um, myth about, you know, the creativity has to be original, I kind of disagree with it, really. I think with, with music, you can be truly original. Um, but with creativity, because you're selling to a mass market, it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint someone's humour or someone's emotion. And to me, it's, 
it, it, it's taking something that's inspired you, taking a little bit of originality, you know, taking something you know, taking something you don't know, and injecting a whole heap of personality into that. I think that's kind of the key to a kind of a creative rather than just it has to be uniquely original. Because if it's original, it will just fall on deaf ears. So it's, 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 it's taking something but kind of adding your own spin to it and, um, you know, giving it, giving it sort of something that's got kind of massive appeal. But it's, it's, it's a tricky one because, you know, like I said, you know, nowadays the consumer is the brand. You know, they can tear a brand apart through a, a tweet. You know, it's kind of, they are. So it's very difficult. And that's exactly to your point, you know, it almost annoys me now, like there was content's the key word, but it shouldn't be. Content's just a channel. It should be, to me, it should be like, I don't know, conversation. And we should be having a two-way conversation. And the consumer should be the voice of the brand. And that's going back to what we were saying before about if you actually start to invite them in and involve them in stuff and they almost become, it's user-generated content. And they're, it not only builds that long-term kind of brand loyalty, but they feel part of it. You've got that emotional connection rather than just sending them a six-second ad that they can skip or it winds them up, but it's not talking directly to them. Again, you've got to understand the consumer, got to understand their journey, um, and in return, they start to buy and chew from an emotional connection. Not to put you on the spot, but can you think of uh, an example, maybe one or two brands, where the... I, I was going to say the customers, but I might even say the fan base feel like they are part of it. They don't feel like they buy it, but they feel like they're on that. It's like being supporting a football team where they really feel invested in the brand. An obvious one for me is Apple. It's always, you know, that was, uh, are, you, are you Mac or PC was still a relevant debate when I was at school, but I don't know. I think, I think that's exactly it. Funny enough, I was reading an article last night and Apple sprung to mind for me because with Apple, you buy into an ecosystem. Now, I would go and buy a pair of these regardless if I can get them £100 cheaper. It's just almost, you're almost brainwashed into it because you're buying into their ecosystem. And what's brilliant with them is they make you feel like you're invested in the future. You know, it's all, everything they do is almost like, come with us. We know what's... This, this, is, this is the new, the new earphones. This is the new laptop. And it's exactly that. You feel like you're on a journey with them. You feel like you need to get the first phone, the first headphones because you are leading that brand. And I think that's kind of a prime example. Similar thing to kind of, you know, the sneakers, I guess, as well. You've got Adidas and you've got Nike. And you, you know, if, because now, well, I probably say Adidas more than Nike, maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm biased, but because you've got these kind of like, you know, you've got these big kind of drops, you've got these collabs, you've got these launch parties, similar thing. You feel that you're wearing their product first more than anyone else. And because you are, same with Apple, you want to share that, you want to celebrate it. And that's where social media comes in. That's where the application of an idea, idea comes in. And that's where brands who are thinking longer are kind of have got the longevity. Great. Well, I, don't, I, I uh, want to pause in a different direction because, as you know, uh, we are all about music and nominally yeah. this is all about music. And you said that you would love to talk about music. So I'd you know probably lead in by saying, uh, give me a few of your top records, maybe one that changed the direction of your life, maybe one that you, if you always, if someone asks you right now what's favourite record, it probably comes into your head. I don't know. But yeah, talk to me about your music taste. You know what? It, it was really interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive music nut. Um, and I always go back to, it's got me thinking today, actually, about like music, especially now you're kind of stuck indoors. And I could go weeks or days without um, booze, football, junk food, but I don't think I've ever gone a day 
by without music. You know, it, it's so integral to me. You know, I go back to, you know, Northern Soul, A Way of Life. That's so apt. Do you know what I mean? It's such a, you know, so I, I love music and especially sort of like, you know, being indoors, being that, you know, to me, it's like the ultimate time machine. It just triggers memories. It takes you back. It reminds you of people. And I think that's quite important, you know, in this current climate, you know, because it's just quite a time to reflect. So um, it's been a massive, it's been a backdrop to my lockdown. Um not only because I've got two kids and it drowns them out, but, um, you know, it's just been really good. I think, so to go back to your original kind of question, you know, is there a record that changed my life? I think, I don't know where to start. And I think the way I look at it, it's probably, it's more music that has kind of guided my life. I think it's probably the better one. And I've always seen music as like movement rather than genres. I've always been attracted to like the subcultures and it's the style and the sounds. But because of my age, I've always seemed to have missed out on the subculture, I've always been like three years too late to a subculture. So when I, when I grew up, my, my, you know, it, it always, I guess I was kind of heavily influenced by Stones, Bowie, Clash, Specials, you know, that's my go-to music. My parents were big into music and they always, they played it, so it just rubbed off of me. Um, but, you know, it was almost that kind of rebellious music, you know, Johnny Cash. So I guess when I was kind of in the, in the late 80s, that was when I was growing up. But I think when it really hit me was probably the early to mid 90s. That was kind of my teenage years. And up, up until then, like I said, I was always kind of flitting between kind of like these different kind of movements, you know, looking back at the punk, the scar, you know, um, the, the, the rave, you know, and it all, it, it was kind of a little bit disjointed in my kind of, you know, quite, you know, my head. And then I guess it kind of got to like the mid 90s or the early to mid 90s when it almost, I guess everything kind of came, it was like a perfect storm. You know, I love guitar-based bands. And then you had this kind of electronic stuff coming in. So where I was growing up, it was kind of the big rave scene was happening. So like early Prodigy was coming in. Obviously you had the big Manchester scene, like the Stone Roses, you know. I almost kind of feel that like the mid-90s was just kind of the, the, the point where I'd some, something clicked, where if you look at a band like the Stone Roses, now they came on to Stone Love, you know, Northern Soul, very mod-focused. But then they had like Paul Oakenfold's, you know, opening for them, you know, mixing their albums. And I think that to me was almost like the point where it wasn't a record that kind of changed my life, but it, everything kind of came together. And it kind of, it was that kind of perfect storm of like, you don't have to sit with a specific genre. And it was when, you know, bands started, you know, mixing with DJs. Um, and it just, I think that was almost like the turning point of my life where I was like, holy shit it all fits together now. And then it starts to take you on a different journey of like, well, they like Northern Soul, where does that go? I love sort of the house scene and the, the dance music was just immense there. You look at the Glastonbury lineups in the mid to late eight, uh, 90s, it was just, you know, some of the albums coming out, you know, uh, some of the dark scenes down here, some of the, 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 the music up, up north, it was just kind of a melting pot. And I think that to me was probably like, I wouldn't say it's a record, but it was, there's too many to choose from. But that was a time when it's kind of everything just clicked into gear, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is it for me." I feel like as well at that particular time that you're referring to, especially with the acts that you've mentioned, it was um, a, a, a a it was a thriving time for artists from the UK, both from London and from from elsewhere. Yeah. It's very much. I feel like it's quite dominated by American artists at the moment because we're in a, a 
something of a second wave of uh, hip-hop, absolute hip-hop dominance. So, you know, you've got your Post Malones, you have your Drakes, you have Travis Scott, you have all these people uh, annihilating the charts. But I feel like at the time you were describing, there's a real massive thing going on in in, uh, in London and in the UK. So, you know, we talked about Prodigy, but you could talk about Blur, you could talk about the Charlatans, the Stone Roses, Oasis, and it, it goes on from that point. And then, yeah, as you say, all the electronic artists, all the DJs, and so... Um, and, no, no, no. I was just going to say, what uh, was there something in the water at the time, or what? You know, what do you think was going on? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about. It. I don't know. It just, I think everything, everything just came together. I think it was there was a freedom. I think there was almost there was, it felt like a freedom and a rebellion in a way, um, where you know, I, 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 and it goes back to kind of like you know the movement. Right, there was no genre really. It was like indie or Brit pop or dance, but it kind of was amalgamation and to me it was kind of like it was more like the culture it felt like the UK had something and like I, I never really brought into like the oasis or the blur the, the north or the south it was it felt a little bit kind of media driven but you know you had Noel Gallagher you know with the, the chemical brothers you had like open folds like it was just a really great time and you know it was I think the fashion the music the whole culture around it I don't know yeah I, I don't know I mean it, if you could bottle it you'd, you'd, you'd go back there it was just um it was just an awesome time. And I think also, there was, like I said, there was a freedom. It didn't feel like, you know, you, you look at some of the Oasis lyrics now and, you know, even look at the bands like, you know, Ocean Colour Scene, who was kind of almost they reinvented like the mods, you know, and Weller was doing his own thing, going solo. And, uh, you know, I think Primal Screamer, a very underrated band, you know, and what they were doing, they were sort of fusing that kind of dance with kind of indie it just felt like kind of a really good time to explore where they could take their inspirations. I think that was why I was going back to where if you're not following genres, it just started to take on this kind of musical journey. And then because of that, you'd sort of then go and maybe find out a love for, again, Northern Soul, or you go and look into hip hop, like you said, because there was that kind of, there was a lot of collabs going on at the time. And um, probably similar going back to like when I was a bit younger, you know, and because if you've got an appreciation of music, especially with my family, there was this, freedom to explore it and when I was growing up they always had these you know, I don't know if it was the late 80s it was this kind of parental advisory explicit lyrics on the on the tapes then and going back to like the early hip-hop I got into that in a big way because at the time you had NWA you had Public Enemy you know um, amazing albums you know and as, as a white kid from down south listening to this kind of like black American hip-hop and then they started to partner up with like Anthrax and the rock bands. Do you know what I mean? It was just kind of a really good fusion. And I think it was quite a cultural education point for me, you know, and um, especially in the current climate, it was just, uh, like I said, it, it was kind of, it felt like a freedom, but a rebellion as well. Yeah. So it feels like every, maybe every 20 years or so, there's a form of the spirit that brought punk about reemerges. So, because I feel like the artists you mentioned there, I mean, obviously NWA, um, and their reservations about authority, in particular the police, it's very anarchic. Which again shares some some of the it shares at least a spiritual relation to punk, even if it's not directly related. And then I'm seeing that again now. I, I, I was saying to someone on one of these recently. I went to see a, a, a young uh, rapper called Octavian from London. He's on Black Butter Records. I saw him at the Academy, and I'm already I'm I'm 27 but I'm already too old to stand anywhere near the front on those kind of gigs because everyone's like 16 but uh, that looked like 
a punk gig from the back, the silhouette was just chaos. And I was like, this comes every 20 years or so, it goes mad. And then you get an impression of it. So I felt like when I was in school, 2004 to 2009, that was like the landfill indie era. We had loads of hives, vaccines, uh, you had scouting for girls and all this type of stuff. And it looked like an impression of the actual rebellion. It looked like an impression of the thing that you were experiencing in the 90s, but it, not the real thing. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, I mean, maybe it's my age, I don't know. But again, it, it all felt a bit safe. It all felt a bit samey, you know, and this is where I quite like, you know, going back to that kind of rebellion. And again, it goes back to kind of movements rather than genres, you know, and that's what kind of attracted me to like, you know, like the sort of the, the hip hop, you know, the, the punk, the ska. There was, a, there was a cultural point to it. You know, there was a reason for writing this music because they wanted to get their viewpoint across, whether or not you were kind of, yeah, in the punk scene, in kind of like the, the, the hip-hop scene, whether it might be the ska scene. There, there was kind of a point, it almost felt like culture was making you address these issues and maybe we haven't really got that. So the, the, maybe I'm wrong, but the music, it doesn't feel like it resonates as much anymore. Um, maybe I'm completely wrong, but it just felt like quite raw and quite kind of... Um, honest and again you know, I guess that's probably what gravitates me towards those type of kind of um, bands and artists and maybe that going back to sort of like the late 80s early 90s that it, we had a there's a lot to say there's a lot of issues and these bands were weren't afraid should we say of, of, of talking about it yeah it's and obviously at the at the time we're speaking it's the fourth of it's the fourth of June 2020 and I I can't help but sense sort of in the air that we might be about to enter another one of those periods of time because obviously we have this, today in particular, we have this trivectorate issue, uh, trivectorate of issues because we've got coronavirus and we all feel quite frustrated and pent up because of that. And people have responded very, with various levels of effectiveness across you know various governments. So the US have handled it in their way, we've handled it in our way, New Zealand, Germany, whatever. Um, there's a bit of antipathy about coronavirus, but we also have the climate issue, which was dominating the headlines last year. Uh, and there's a youth movement around that because of the Greta Thunberg moment. And then in the last week, we've had an enormous uh, the news, the news gravitational pull has been all on George Floyd, the death of George Floyd, and how African Americans feel they're regarded or re represented in the U.S. So I feel like, you know, there's just enough things rubbing up against each other to create one more, another one of these moments. It does feel like that. It just, I, I, yeah, it just feels something's bubbling, um, and it, it feels like there's enough anger to. I heard a brilliant quote the other day. It was, uh, yeah, you, you, you can't enjoy the rhythm, but ignore the blues, you know, in relation to that. Uh, and, then, you know, I, th I thought it was, it was, it was a brilliant. It kind of encapsulated it perfectly. And then, you know, if you're looking back at kind of culture at the moment, and I guess, you know, you, 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 what we're talking about, music is predominantly, if you, if you go back far enough, it is, you know, black-orientated music has been pretty much... You know, the, 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 you know, it's kind of leading in terms of whether it's kind of soul, whether it's funk, whether it's ska, whether it's hip hop. You know, you could see even looking at like the Stones, how they're heavily influenced by, you know, yeah, without a doubt. And the Clash, you know, the punk scene, it all comes, it all starts kind of. So, and again, but all that was kind of started with anger because these bands had something to say and they weren't getting heard. So they turned to music. So as much as it's a very sad 
situation that we sort of find ourselves in and it's worrying, I do feel that hopefully something, a movement will come out of this that's positive. And if it's based around kind of music or a culture, then it will probably get a lot more people listening to the message rather than kind of protesting and doing it in sort of you know, violent ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Um, but uh, but it definitely feels like we are at uh, a point of some kind of node, some kind of thing where things are about to turn in a different direction. So um, so I'll be interested to see how it pans out. Should we uh, just take a, a, a little bit of time here to talk about the? We've, meant, we've talked about the creative world. We've talked a bit about the music world. Should we talk about when those two things collide and when uh, do you think you what? What comes to mind if I ask you what's the best music choice in an advert that you've seen? Well, two spring to mind for me. Um, I do love the Durex Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Uh, that works on every level. Um, genius. But I think the one that absolutely springs out to me is um, Guinness, the surfer ad, uh, um, which is just you know, featuring Leftfield's Fat Planet. Um, it's just amazing. I, I didn't realise actually it was never a single, but I think because of the advert, it made it so big, which is, I guess, the power of power of advertising, um, which is great. And I just, you know, that, that two-note bass line, that kind of, you know, this distorted, it just, it just made your bollocks tingle. Um, excuse my language. You know, and it was a true work of art. And what was interesting about it was as soon as you heard it, you wanted to go clubbing, but the last thing you want to do when you go to a club is have a pint of Guinness. But who cares? Because it was just, it was kind of a weird, you know, but I just think it was, um, yeah, it was a true work of art. And I think it, it probably wouldn't have worked without the music. Um, and it was just such a, such a beautiful piece of work. And again, I mean, yeah, Levi's done some great ones. There's been some good music. But I think that one for me was just the standout one because of the cinema, just, uh, just because of the way it was crafted, the way it was built. And just that, that, that yeah, just the music, just the intro of Fat Planet was just, it was just on point. Yeah, when I spoke to Hugh Todd about this, he said the way it felt was that it was composed bespoke for the advert, just as this little rise of sound design, because it rises like the wave in Surfer, of course. Mm-hmm. And then when it set, you know, when it delivers its message, here's to waiting. And then it's really loud, overwhelming. It was just worked really well. And I, I, when I first saw it, I, I, I kind of likened it to like the heartbeat. You know, I don't know, it was, it was something quite nice about it. So again, it, it got you on an emotional level as well, but it was just one of those ads where you just wanted to turn it up and you wanted to go out and you wanted to go clubbing. So yeah, um, that, yeah. That, was, that was brilliant. I think Guinness have had really great marketing almost non-stop since then. Something they, They're doing something really well. Obviously, they work with Albert Mead Vickers. I think they still work with them. But um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, the surfer commercial on a few levels was quite clever because like you say, Guinness isn't the kind of thing you have on a night out, but yeah. it became associated with hardcore surfing. Cool. Again, surfers are not going to drink Guinness. It's no. uh, it, it repositions it like in, uh, in, in a single stroke. And also the thing that probably many people in brand and, you know, just in general, you know, people who make products are trying to do is how to turn something that is a problem with the product into one of the charms and one of the benefits. And one of the problems with Guinness is you have to wait forever for it to be poured. And they, exactly. and they made that the thing. Here's to waiting. Exactly. We well, can, can go for a surf or a horse ride. That's, that's the advert was created, doesn't it? But it was, yeah, it was, it was just a really powerful ad. And I think... I think that was it. That, that to them was, to your point, it was sort of the tipping point and they became more kind of culturally relevant. Whereas before everybody thought it was like, 
an old man down the pub having a Guinness on a Sunday. It just felt like, you know, probably trying to address kind of a, a, a modern or a younger crowd and be part of kind of culture. Yeah, which of course is presumably in, in at, your, at your level of things when you're the creative and you're trying to figure out what the message is going to be. Presumably that's happened so much. They're saying our brand's kind of getting old and we need to really give it some new blood. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's kind of what we could come back to sort of, you know, the thinking longer. I think that's what, that's what agencies should be doing. They should be kind of future gazing. They should be looking at the future. They should be kind of leading and sort of like coaxing your clients into where they should be going. And again, it's not just a case of looking at kind of what everyone else is doing, looking at you know new channels. It's looking at kind of culture and then the consumer and where they're going, you know. And uh, if you can start to sort of align them up, it just gives it gives kind of a fresh impetus to the actual clients. Yeah. So um, let's... Uh We'll just do, a, I suppose, a little um, a little thing to wrap up now, being where do you think things are going this year? Not only, not just on a societal level, because no one can make predictions, but what do you see happening for brands and for creative uh, over the next six m- months or maybe even the next year? Um, I mean, yeah, with, with brands, who knows, I guess. It, it's, it's kind of like... <clears throat> I mean, it's a tricky one for brands because they're going to have to sell, they're going to have to market, they're going to have to advertise. It's just how are they going to do it and where are they going to do it? And I think our job now is to look at kind of positives coming out of this pandemic. Uh, I mean, from the, from a physical perspective, you, you made a point earlier, you know, the, the, the uplift in digital and online and commerce and, you know, social media apps is massive. So I think a lot of consumers have got uh, trust in brands, e-commerce, you know, and social platforms. So I think that will be a big driver going forward. Um, so it's then just maybe starting to look at kind of the innovation and the tech around um, the digital side of things starting to bring back the physical space, I think. Um, I mean, before the pandemic, you know, experiential was a big thing. How can we do that now with social distancing? I think that's going to be a problem. So how can we maybe look at kind of experiential from a digital and a tech perspective? I think it's probably going to be uh, an interesting challenge as well. Um, and I think probably from a, you know, a brand perspective, the ones who come out of this are the ones who have really kind of, like I said, kind of, um, sold their purpose or lived their purpose through these times. So I think a lot of um, consumers are brought into um, brands that have kind of sold their pr- purpose rather than their product. So it'd be interesting to see how consumers react to that um, going forward. And I guess then from, um, a, a, I don't know, a creative perspective, I kind of feel that, like I said before, I think creativity has come out of this really well. And I think also, hopefully, we'll have more of a chance to sort of craft more products or more kind of campaigns. Like we said before, we do live in a skip ad culture. We live in a kind of an age of short termism. We kind of felt that, you know, creative was kind of slightly, you know, um, being stifled because, you know, it was just kind of, it was very quick. It was very rushed going back to the Guinness ads. You know, would that be created now? Probably not because you haven't got the time or the budget, but is there a way of bringing that kind of craft and that kind of creativity into something that's kind of fits in with kind of the age of kind of short termism? So I think it'll be an interesting, interesting place to be. Um, I think 
at, at the heart of it, I still think it'll be ideas and innovation going forward. You still need to have a clever idea and start to bring the innovation side into it as well. Um, and, and, and yeah, let's, let, let's have some fun while we do it and see where it goes. Yeah, and that is something I hear over and over again. It's, uh, you know, uh, ad infinitum, uh, the one thing you can't get away from is a good idea. Yeah, everything is around, everything, everything rolls around an idea. Um, and I think, like I said, I think hopefully um, the curse of creativity will, 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 have, will have been lifted through all this. And you know, essentially everyone buys into an idea. Uh, and again, if we can start to kind of take the findings from this pandemic um, and start to bring in kind of you know, the digital, the social, the amplification, how do we attract clients, how do we get them involved? Um, I think we'll be, we'll be in a good place. <laughs>